Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us the last number of weeks, though, you know that we have been in Romans 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we have seen that we have been made ready in Christ. For 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has told us we are made ready in Christ. We have been forgiven in Christ. We have been adopted as children of God in Christ. We have been reconciled to Him. We have been given the Spirit to reside within us. We have been made ready in Christ. For 11 chapters, we saw that. But then we've been made ready for what? Well, we are to take our lives that have been made ready in Christ and we are to aim them in certain directions as we respond to Him in faith. What are we to aim at? Well, we've seen that in Romans 12 the last three Sundays as we have seen things like we are to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice before Him. We are to have our minds transformed by the work of the Spirit that we might serve Him according to the way that He has gifted us, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but that we should also seek to love others. We've seen that over the last number of weeks. Well, today we're going to wrap up this series of of AIM from Romans 12 by looking at the last installment in this series from chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. But before we look at those verses, I want to just ask you a question. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a citizen of Gotham City. You're a citizen of Gotham City, and a crime is committed against you. Who do you turn to for help? Batman, right? You turn to Batman. You don't turn to the police. You turn to Batman. Now, now why would you turn to Batman in Gotham City if a crime has been committed against you. Because you like the kind of justice that he brings. He comes swiftly, and he unilaterally takes care of the situation, uh, bringing justice your way. Because of those things, uh, you like the kind of justice that, that Batman brings. And apparently, Americans like the kind of justice that Batman brings. For nearly 80 years now, Batman has been a part of the pop cultural experience in America. We like this idea. And when you think about who Batman is, Batman is a normal citizen just like you and I. I mean, who is Batman? Come on, you all know. He's Bruce Wayne, right? Uh, Bruce Wayne, just a normal citizen, a billionaire normal citizen, but a normal citizen. And it's someone who seeks to bring justice. We would call him maybe the epitome of vigilante justice. And if you lived in Gotham City, you would turn to the sky, to the bat signal, if a crime had been committed for him to come to your aid. Now, most of us would not behave that way if a crime was committed against us here. Uh, Shining a bat signal in the sky would not prove very productive in Norman, um, in case you have tried it. it. It doesn't work the same way here. And as a matter of fact, many times we don't normally think of vigilante justice as something that is to be preferred in our world, at least in the way that Batman brings it about. But when we think about retaliating when wrongs have been done to us, sometimes we do want to respond with a little vigilante justice when we have been wronged. Sometimes we want to, as a normal citizen, we want to take some 
things from our emotional utility belt and use them to bring justice to our situation. We want to spray the person who has wronged us with the repellent of passive-aggressive behavior. Or we want to shoot them who have wronged us with the fiery dart of angry words. Or we want to trap them beneath the web of retribution or getting back in one way, shape, or form. Friends, we, we struggle with this idea of feeling the need to, to make the wrongs done to us right. That's what's natural to us as humans. But is that what God wants us to do? Does God have another way for us to respond when we have been wronged? The answer to that is an emphatic yes. And it's part of what you should expect to flow from the life of one whose life has been transformed in Christ, a different kind of response when we have been wronged. That's the subject of Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, and we're going to look at those verses today. How do we respond when we have been wronged? I think that the ultimate response that is given is a response that gives us freedom. Rich Mullins has a line in one of his songs where he says, sometimes God takes this whole world by the corners and shakes us forward and shakes us free. And friends, when we respond to things that have been done wrong to us by doing wrong to them in return, by trying to get even in some way, we find ourselves stuck in certain situations from our past. But when we see the way that God wants us to respond to the wrongs done to us, we can find freedom in Him. My prayer today is that God somehow shakes us forward and shakes us free as we look at the call of Christ on how to respond when we have been hurt. And we see this in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes and says this. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In these seven verses, we see a couple of things about how we can respond when we are wronged, when our lives have been transformed by Christ. The first thing that we see is this. We can dive in with others. We can dive in with others. Now, we see this in verses 15 and 16. Really, these verses, 15 and 16, are kind of a hinge point in this passage. In some ways, they look back to what we talked about last week, general loving behavior and what it should look like in the life of a Christian. The big idea from last week and continued into this week in these verses is that a transformed life 
is not only interested in our own experience, but it dives into the experiences of others. When the Spirit of God is at work in our lives and is transforming us according to the mind of Christ, it's not selfish, but it reaches out to others. It seeks to include others. It dives in with others and relates with them and to them. And the transformed life will relate to others as it dives in with them in a couple of different ways. It will relate to them both in harmony and in humility. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, by saying that we dive in with others in harmony, we see this idea of resonating with them emotionally. We see this in verse 15. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to have some emotional harmony with those around us. Now, let me ask you a question. As you reach out and and interact with others, do you find it easier to rejoice with those who rejoice, or do you find it easier to weep with those who weep? Now, some of you are, are thinking of your answer to that question, but really, at some level, it ought to be, it depends, right? It's easier to rejoice with those who rejoice when what they are rejoicing about is something that you share. It's easier to weep with those who weep when, when what they are weeping about is something that you share. I'll give you an example. How many of you are OU football fans? Hey, about 2.30 yesterday, we could weep together, right? We could share that moment. On a number of Saturdays this year, we will be able to rejoice together in those moments, right? When we have a shared interest, when we want the same thing, and when we experience the same thing, it is easier for us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But here's the thing. How easy is it to rejoice with somebody when they're rejoicing over something you want and don't have? Hard to do, isn't it? Think of an an experience where a couple is, is longing for a child but experiencing infertility. And then their friend gets pregnant. Is it easy to rejoice in that situation? A little harder, isn't it? I mean, one family is praying and they're they're doing all these things. We're going through treatments and their friends are praying and they're all in and yet empty arms, empty arms, empty arms, empty arms. Their friend that just kind of looks at each other one evening, they get pregnant. And then you get together and you talk, and it's hard to rejoice in a situation like that. How easy is it to rejoice if you've just lost your job, but your friend just got a promotion? Hard to do. It's difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice when what they want is something that you want but don't have, something they've received. Hard to rejoice in that situation. How do, you, how do you weep with those who weep? Well, a husband and wife who lose a child, they weep together because of what they lost, they shared. But how easy is it to weep with somebody who loses something that you didn't know or you don't care about, and yet they're weeping nonetheless? It's hard to do. Friends, we are to live in harmony with one another, verse 16 says. We are to connect, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. How do we do that? 
not just when our interests align, but how do we do that on a consistent basis? It is difficult to do. It is impossible to do in our flesh. But here's the thing, friends. It is absolutely possible when our minds and hearts are transformed in Christ. Because when Jesus gets involved in our lives and he transforms our heart and our life, though it is painful, it is possible for us to step away from ourselves and towards others and rejoice with them in their blessing or weep with them in their loss, even if we don't share it. We are to live our lives with with harmony to others. That's Part of how we dive in with them. This isn't easy to do. It's not natural to do, but it's supernatural. It's something God can do in and through us. Not only are we to dive in with others in harmony, though, we're also to dive in with others in humility. In humility. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 16. He says, never, uh, or he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly never being wise in our own sight. Paul is encouraging us to to not think more of ourselves than we should. He's encouraging us, literally in the original language here, to be carried along with the lowly. See, we have this this situation in our lives, this pull within us that, that wants us to interact with, to spend time with, to be associated with people that are at our same level or above, however we would determine that. It's just a human human nature thing. Because we feel like people who are like us or who are a little beyond us, they have something to offer us. But we have a tendency in humanity to forget the lowly. We have a tendency as humanity to maybe discount or discard those who are financially in need, or to discount those who are emotionally in need. We we have a tendency to want to marginalize. This is something that has been codified in different systems around the world. You think about Hinduism and the caste system in India, where there are castes and strata of society, and people are only supposed to interact with those in, in their particular caste or lot. Paul writes to to let us know that the church should not be a place that is characterized only by those who are like us or beyond us, but the church is a place where everyone, even from the lowly to the highest, that, that, that we are a place for all of us, reconciled in Christ, united together with Him. We have the opportunity to be a part of one body together. See, we are called to be carried along by the lowly. Now, one of the things that that we might want to ask with this is, you know, why does he single them out? Why not also say, you know, be carried along with the lowly and the wealthy? I think the reason why he doesn't do that is because we'll remember the wealthy. But we should not forget the lowly. We move together in the body of Christ. We're to dive into our experience with others and live in harmony with them and live in humility among them. This is what happens when our our minds are transformed, when our lives are transformed in Christ. It's not natural for us, but it's supernatural and it's possible in Christ. We're to dive in with others. 
But the second thing that we see from this passage deals specifically with opposition. And we are called to deal with opposition. Now we see this in verse 14 and also in verses 17 through 21. Now, when we think about the idea of, of dealing with opposition, sometimes we think of that in terms of, okay, we, we deal with opposition by, by winning the fights with others. That's many times how we think about dealing with opposition around us. But that's not what Paul has in mind, not what he lays out. He talks about how a transformed life deals with opposition. A transformed life in Christ does not just treat their foes or their, their fans with kindness, but also their foes. A transformed life does not just treat their fans with kindness, but also their foes. See, we are to love others in Christ, even those who have wronged us. And Paul gets this idea, not just from his own head, he gets this idea from Jesus himself, who taught us what it looks like to live among those who persecute us or who have wronged us in some way. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and following, and he said this, he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either." Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus taught about responding and dealing with opposition differently than the world deals with it. And not only did Jesus teach it, but Jesus also lived it out. Think about Christ on the cross as he was being insulted. Did he insult them in return? No, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. So when we think of a response to opposition for a Christian, it is not that we seek to win the battles, it's that we seek to respond with evil with good. We seek to respond with love even to our foes. Now we see this in verse 14 and then verse 17 through 21. Now, what's interesting, I want to just make one little side point with this uh, before we get into the specifics of what it looks like for us to deal with opposition and love in Christ. These are admonitions for the individual, what we're getting ready to see. When we leave wrath to God, which we're going to see in just a moment, uh, God will exhibit that wrath even through government systems. Chapter 13 of Romans will talk about that. Police exhibit authority and retribution in this life in an appropriate way under God's authority as his agent in that situation. So there is an appropriate expression of God's wrath even in this world towards evildoers. But that's not to be the response of individuals. We don't get from God a Batman card that invites us to go and be a vigilante bringing justice to ourselves. Instead, we get a call to respond to opposition in four different ways. First thing that we see is that we are to let the cycle stop with us. We are to let the cycle stop with us. We see this in verse 17. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
He says, let the cycle stop with us. There's a cycle that happens when evil is done. If you insult me and then I insult you in return, then you insult me in return, then I insult you in return. We have a full-on war, don't we? And that's the way the world operates. That's the expected response when insults come your way. But what happens if you stop the cycle? What happens if an insult comes your way, but you don't retaliate? It's possible the cycle could end with you. I'll use my, my, my friend Scott because Scott's just a, a kind person. Uh, we've never had uh, a, a, a conflict, so this is not a Freudian. This is nothing. This is somebody that, that I've got a, a good relationship with. But you can imagine if Scott insulted me and I turn and insult Scott back and then Scott insults me in return, we start a cycle of violence with our words back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's normal for this world, but that's not, that's not normal for the transformed mind. The transformed mind responds to insult with kindness. It doesn't repay evil for evil. Instead, we seek to do what is honorable in the sight of all, giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, what is that? That, that is responding to this insult with, with kindness, something that is held in honor among all. And it's surprising, and it, it gives a testimony that lets someone know that something supernatural or something beyond the person has happened. I'll give you an example of this just from the Olympic Games, something that you may have followed. There was a, a distance race in the Olympic Games. There were two women who were running in that race amidst a number of other athletes. Um, one of them was Abby D'Agostino. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce her name. If her parents are here, I apologize. But Abby D'Agostino uh, was running in this race, an American, and Nikki Hamblin was running in this race from New Zealand. And Nikki Hamblin falls in that race, and Abby D'Agostino trips over her. And you can imagine what has gone into that moment, all of the hours of training and years and, and all of the, the, the striving for an Olympic medal, and this is finally at the big stage, and Hamblin goes down and D'Agostino falls behind her, and you can imagine that the normal thing to happen at that point would have been anger and bitterness from D'Agostino. To, to get up and, and to be angry, why did you fall? Why did you trip me? Keep your space. Watch what you're doing. But that's not what happened, was it? What happened? Augustino helped Hamblin up and said, come on, come on. We have a race to finish. And even though Augustino had torn her ACL, they helped each other to the finish line. Now, when you saw injury responded to with kindness, the whole world got interested in that story. The whole world said, this is the epitome of the Olympic spirit. In the same way, I think what Paul is saying is, he says, when Christians respond to opposition, not by returning insult for insult, but responding to insult with honor, what happens is the cycle is stopped and it, and it stands out. People look at it and go, there is something different. Not the Olympic spirit, but the spirit of Christ is present in the way that conflict was handled. We're called to let the cycle stop with us. Where do you sit in that cycle right now? Somebody wronged you? Has a cycle of insult started? Has a cycle of retribution started? Let it stop today. Let it stop with you. Second thing that happens as we deal with opposition, 
We are to live at peace with all. We're to live at peace with all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I think what's interesting about this are the two exception clauses that Paul adds to the beginning of that phrase. The the, the admonition is for us to live at peace with all, but it's as if he knows that peace is not possible in every situation because peace requires two parties, doesn't it? Peace requires two parties. For me to have peace with Scott, we would have to reconcile together, and sometimes reconciliation is not possible because the other person is not interested. What Paul says, though, is that as far as it depends upon you, he says, if it is possible, we are to live at peace with all. You know, there are situations that are dramatic that you're living in right now. I don't know all of your situations, but I know several. And there are are times where couples are in the midst of divorce, have just gone through divorce, on the edge of divorce, and you're, you're in that kind of a pain right now, and you wonder, what does it mean for me to live at peace in that situation? Well, well, it may mean that you can want peace, but it may not be possible because your spouse has abandoned or your spouse has continued to live a life that makes it impossible for reconciliation by continuing an affair. Or something like that. By continuing abuse in the relationship. In those ways, it's possible that it's you can't experience the kind of peace that you want. What Paul is saying here, and God is encouraging us with, is that if it is possible, and as far as it depends upon you and the things that you have control over, the way that you are responding, the way that you're interacting, be a person of peace in the relationships around you. Don't be Batman seeking to exact your own revenge. But as far as it depends on you, be a person of peace. We're to let the cycle stop with us. We're to live at peace with all. He continues on in verse 19 and says that we are to leave retribution in his hands. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, the Apostle Paul writes, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Really what Paul is getting at there is that we are to leave a place for wrath. In the original language, that's literally what it says, leave room for wrath. But it's not your wrath that we're to leave room for. He makes it clear in his quotation of Deuteronomy 32-35 that the wrath that we are to leave room for is the wrath of God. In other words, God is able to deal with the injustices in this world, including the injustices that have been done to you. God is is able to deal with them, and He will deal with them in an emphatic way. In the life of Christians, other believers who have wronged you, you realize that Jesus' death on the cross, that any sin that they have done against you, that Christ's death paid for those wrongs, God's wrath was satisfied in Christ, but it, it, was, it cost him significantly, right? But not only do we have a promise that God will deal with his wrath in appropriate ways regarding Christians, but also with everyone in the world because 
book of Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 lets us know that when Jesus comes, he will bring retribution into this world according to the deeds done. See, friends, we can know that God's wrath will meet the injustices and the wrongs done to us. We can know that that's true. That'll allow us to to rest easy. You see, when we exact wrath ourselves and we try to get justice ourselves, how satisfying is that for us? Let's be honest. It's a little satisfying. It, It feels good for a moment or two or an hour, maybe a week, but it doesn't last. Our wrath has short-term gain and long-term pain. But think about what happens if we leave room for God's wrath. Though this may be a period of time where we are waiting now, it's short-term pain, wondering where justice is. But it's long-term gain. He will take care of it. Friends, we need to leave room for God to work. We need to leave retribution in His hands. This is, this is hard to do. We, we want to respond and, and bring some retribution ourselves at times, but we need to leave that to God. We want to respond and defend ourselves and prove to everyone else that we are right. We want a vindication in the moment, and we want to get it ourselves, and yet that's not what we're called to do here. We're called to leave a place for God's wrath in the midst of our opposition. The fourth thing that we see as we respond to opposition is that we are to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies. Now, we see this beginning in verse 14 where he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He's talking there about our words, that our words would would be words that would not curse those who have opposed us, those who have hurt us, but they would be words that would bless them. Now, this is really hard to do, isn't it? Because the easiest way to retaliate when somebody has hurt us is with our mouths. It's the easiest way. As a matter of fact, James would say in in his, his epistle, he would say that somebody who does not sin with their mouth is capable of living a sinless life. So easy for us to sin with what we say. We are to bless instead of to curse, and this is difficult because when somebody wrongs you, you want to insult them in, in response. And if you don't want to insult them to their face, you want to get an audience with somebody else that you can insult them behind their back. We, we want to, to lash out with our words, and yet here we are called to bless and not to curse with our words. We're to love even our opponents, the opposition, with our words. Not only that, but we're to love them with our lives. He says, to the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. We're to serve others. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're to do good in response to evil done to us. That's That's difficult, and it's challenging for us to respond to hurt in that way. Part of how we stop the cycle, though, is part of how a transformed life responds. Now, in the midst of that call to respond 
to hurt with service or good, there's this little phrase that seems totally out of place. In verse 20, he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that seems odd to me. Does it seem odd to you? Somebody wrongs you, give them something to drink and eat, and then watch as their head burns in your presence. That just seems odd. Um, We're not to serve others for the purpose of wounding them, are we? That doesn't seem in pace with the rest of the passage. So what is he talking about here? In the cultural setting that this was written, the idea of coals on the head was a picture of repentance. So us serving those who have done evil to us is creating an environment with the hope that they repent of their sin. That's the idea. We are not out to to get everybody. We're not out to seek our own justice. We are out to to love others and create a space for their reconciliation with God. Friends, these these are challenging statements, aren't they? I mean, if, if you have any relationships in your life, and I'm sure that you do, um, this is hard stuff. It's relevant for us to look at, and it's, it's unnatural for us to do. There was some point of what I said today where, where you kind of bristled and said, I can't do that. And the answer to that is you can't. But guess who can? Jesus can do that through you. Part of what happens when we are are made ready in Christ is that the Spirit of God comes to reside within us. And when the Spirit of God resides within us, it seeks a transforming work in our lives to make it possible for us to live out what would otherwise be impossible in our flesh. As our lives are transformed in Christ, what we should see is we should see a life that responds to opposition differently than somebody who is not connected. Because Christ is living that out through us. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at this idea of what we should be aiming our lives at from Romans 12. And I want to wrap up this series by by looking at these ideas together, the things that we've seen in this series. What are we to be aiming at in response to all that God has done for us? Well, we are to respond to all that God is with all that we are. We are to remember that a transformation is needed, a transformation of our minds. We need to get the right measurement of ourselves, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we are to give the right service according to how He has equipped us so that when we interact with others, as others peer into our lives, they will see the love of Christ, a love that dives in with others and deals with opposition with kindness. Now, what's interesting is if this is a description of the transformed life in Christ, what do you not see up there? You don't see very much that deals with us. Sometimes we think that the, the perfect expression of our, of our faith is that we are smarter, or the perfect expression of our faith is that, that, that we are more blessed. 
Here's the thing. When the Spirit is really transforming us, we, we do have enhanced knowledge of, of God because we're reading His Word and understanding it. We do have deeper fellowship with Him. We do have these things. But here's the thing. As it lives out in this world, it will be expressed through love for others. That's what the transformed life looks like. It's not a selfish life. It's a life lived in community with others. And friends, in Christ, that is what is available to all. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to to gather today and to worship. I thank you for your word that has reminded us of what a transformed life looks like. Thank you that you have redeemed us in Christ for the purpose of following you in a way that is different from the sin of this world. Father, I pray that you would help us as as believers in Christ to have lives marked by service to you and love for others and not by love for self. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.